Hello, my name is uh, Todd Neiswanger. I'm the lead pastor at Cornerstone Church in Simi Valley. And again, today I am here with the Honorable Spencer McCush, mm. the president of Eternity Bible College. Um, we actually are doing this for a second time. <laughs> we, we made it number two. We'll see how many how many podcasts eventually before they they shut us off. <clears throat> but we are we're excited that you're here today with us. We we're doing this podcast because one thing we really believe is that um, growing and thinking and wrestling with with who God is and His Word should happen outside of just even Sunday mornings. It should happen all the time. So this podcast is designed to be. Something that is much more than just what we we do on a Sunday morning, and our, our our hope truly is that this will be a podcast where we take biblical truths, we take ideals, and we seek to bring them to life inside of a local church because we truly believe that the best place to to work these truths out is within the local church. I know this is about Spencer. We've always been guys that have truly believed that the church is special, even in spite of all its warts and different things that are there. So mm-hmm. last week. Spencer, we talked a lot about identity from from First Peter, and we, we tried, did. We did, and we tried to draw out this idea of elect exiles in that. Um, but I think one of the things you and I both agreed with was that there were some, some maybe some things we needed to tie up off of last time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask some questions, and I'll throw them to you to to do some answers, <laughs> and hopefully that'll set the stage for us to to really begin to have another discussion through. I think what is. Uh, your question that you asked, which I'll finish with and let you ask that question again, because I do think the rest of that discussion in 13 and following is going to help us with that. But right. So kind of set the table again. Let's let's set the table, man. So here's what I want to do. I want you to take and kind of define out for us again, um, identity. Help us help us kind of wrestle through what is what is identity again, so that we can we can have that in our in our locker to right. draw from. Right. So I, th- I think where we were, where we were last time was we had said that identity is the recognition of of who we are and what we're called to. So who we are and, and, and what we were arguing for is that, that our primary identity has shifted uh, as we become uh, redeemed, you know, that, that now uh, Peter is, is reminding these people who are spread apart this, this diaspora, you know, kind of the scattering of people, um, you know, who are suffering hardship and and he's looking at them and saying, Hey, don't, don't forget that you are elect exiles. That's your primary identity and that you are elect exiles so that you can help people see God better. You can be, you can display God. Right. I really appreciate you had a thought last time. I can't remember exactly what it was, but just this idea of it being so important that God defines our identity. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, that there's a true danger in us thinking somehow we can define who we are when if the one who made us, the one who created the world, right, right. He, he seems to be the one that should say, right, here's who you are. And so all these questions out there, who am I, really are those, they're answered in this idea of an identity defined by God. Yeah, and no, I think I, that, I think us starting with identity, I mean, that's where Peter starts, but but I can't emphasize enough how important that, you know, really wrestling through that issue of identity because every one of us are wrestling through that in some way or another. Um, so yeah, I think 
I think that's where we were last time, yep. the, that issue of identity, really understanding who I am. And that's something that we never escape from. Like, And I think we talked about this even, of going, whether you're you know, 70 plus years old who are trying to redefine, man, who am I now that, you know, my spouse died or I'm retired or they're asking questions of identity or, you know, the empty nest kind of is looming. And, yeah. and who am I now that my kids are transitioning out of the house or, you know, my kids are, you know, how do I, you know, who am I as a middle schooler or whatever? And it's like, everyone's asking this question, who am I? And, and God's not silent on that. Amen. Now in that, we talked about our primary identity I think flowing all the way back to Genesis 1 mm -hmm. in that we are created as image bearers. We're yeah. designed to display God. So real real briefly maybe, because I know several people have even mentioned to me in the past this idea of what do you, what do you mean by display God? Yeah. What is it? I'll throw it at you now. What, is this, what does this mean that we are called to be people? Our primary identity is to put God on display. Yeah. No, I think you just mentioned it actually of going all the way back to Genesis 1 and allowing God to define his creation which we are, I mean, we are his creation. Um, God says that we are image bearers, that humans, humanity, are. we are created with the intent to, to image God. And, and maybe the best way to, to, to help people understand that is going, we are almost like mirrors. You know, we are, we are reflecting God to the world. Um, and that's what we were intended to do. Now, I think I think sin actually mars that, almost like a funhouse mirror, or almost like a broken mirror. And it's not that a broken mirror doesn't reflect; it just doesn't reflect accurately. It's not that that funhouse mirror, the funhouse mirror, just kind of distorts things. But but we, as image bearers, we are mirrors that are intended to reflect God. So not when I use the word display God, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking in terms of reflecting, recognizing that in our broken, sinful lives, we may not be reflecting God accurately, but we're still reflecting God some way or another, <laughs> maybe just poorly. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. Well, yeah. even talking about today, like I love that's where we're going to go today, is that 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 mirror of our lives becomes less distorted over time. Yeah, as redeemed Hopefully. image bearers. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, the redeemed image bearer side of things, yeah, we can start reflecting God more and more accurately. All right, so those kind of set the stage for two things I felt hung out there. And and so now the, this, this second part, you, you asked a question that I said, we're gonna hold off till next time, because I really do believe the the commands that, he, that Peter's gonna give us after he tells us, who we are in 1, 3 through 12, the amazing realities of who we are, he now is going to say, well, here's how you're called to live. So, but your question was what last week? What was, how did you frame that question? So let's, let's start with that and let's build into this, this next section of what we're doing. Yeah. The, so when we were talking last week about if our identity is as elect exiles, that God has designated us to actually, in the midst of hardship, we're not defined by our circumstance. Those are just a setting for us to actually accomplish, you know, this image bearing task, you know, so in our hardship, we can reflect God still. And that's what Peter's calling these people to. And we kind of laid that out in an idealistic sense. But then practically, we were saying, that's really hard, though, because in light of even the last 15 months, man, what do I do when my identity gets wrapped up in the government? Or what do I do when my identity gets wrapped up in my family? And the question I had to you was, okay, so what do I do now that I realize that some of these identities I have are idolatrous? But man, I, it seems like I am in a continual state of struggle. Do I just kind of throw my hands up and go, well, I'm struggling and not really care? Or do I go, well, 
what do, what do I do with the continual struggle of that misplaced identity? Right on. All right, well, let's let's take a look at that. All right, so there's your question out there that it, it really does become something of how to, how do we how do we take what is a reality of how God sees us, right? Because some of those truths of three through twelve are amazing, right? That oh, absolutely that idea we've been born again to a living hope, the idea that we have an inheritance to ensure, the capacity, like the one that kind of blew me away, is the capacity to your point to display God, because God is using even trials, struggles, um, heartache as the means of displaying himself, but it's also the means then of, of that mirror that you're talking about, right? Being righted yeah. in the midst of it. And, and I think like we, we look at that and we go, well, that's incredible. Um, but why am I not there yet? <laughs> right. I mean, it's, I mean, it's all the time. And, and I, and I think even setting the stage for this, I love how you talked about every phase of life has a different way in which we have to work through identity. We have to, I think in some ways work through that our mirror is skewed, even whether we knew it or not. But it wasn't until sometimes a person turns 70 where they go, oh, like now that I'm no longer found an identity in my work, um, my parenting, maybe a little bit earlier, suddenly it's like, oh, my mirror is, it's off. Yeah, you find new cracks in the mirror. Yeah, that we just didn't see before because mm-hmm. we hadn't been through that phase of life. And so on, on one level, just to kind of set the stage for this, I think Peter knew that, right? Because... The thing I love about this section is Peter's not the young brash Peter that we find in the Gospels. This is old Peter, and he's kind of on the edge of of death. He's kind of been there, done that. Uh, We know he was a guy that actually was married. Um, So he's worked through all these different things. And and I think he really was wrestling through, probably he had to wrestle through what, what did it look like for him to no longer be a fisherman. Um, right where he was no longer fishing fish, but doing other things. And yeah, I mean, all the things that, I mean, he had to experience loss. He had to experience the loss of a friend. I mean, he saw Jesus die. Yeah. Right. I mean, what I gave three years of my life to following this guy. I mean, all those things are, I mean, he's wrestling identity issues. Yeah. One of the things you did last week that I thought was really interesting, and I had to make sure that you understood that people may not understand all the words you use, but you used a word that I think is important. And you said, Hey, you know what? Uh, Understanding the indicatives before the imperatives. And I was like, Todd, come on. You can't use big words like that. I'm a real simple guy, man. One syllable words for me. I'm from Um, Wyoming. What are you talking about? But, um, but that idea of, of, of Peter starts with the identity and then he gets to the commands, like the action. And I think that's where from an idealistic sense, Peter goes, okay, here's, here's who you are. But now, practically, what are you supposed to do? Yeah. And how does that how does that land? And I think that's where it's important for us to spend a little bit of time. Yeah. So I, I just to kind of go back and remind the the kind of in in that section of one three through twelve, he's just telling us here's who you are. Again, whether you believe it or not, this is who God says you are. And I think that's one of the hard things about that section of it is to read scripture and go. Okay, God says that's who I am, but man, many times I do not feel like that's who I am, right? I mean, or do I even want that to be who or, I am? Yeah, yeah. Or even do I want to want that to be right. who I am, right? But then always, and, and, and obviously not only does Peter do this, Paul does this, James does this, where they then move to this idea of it needs to be practiced. And I, and I really do feel many times we get satisfied with merely working those things over as truths in our head and missing the fact that... Christianity is not designed to be just thought through. It has to actually be lived to be understood. It's it's experiential by nature because the spirit of God is we we're demanded to be experiential. We 
And, and I think just by human nature, right? We don't learn to work on a car by reading a book. Right. It's not till we climb under the hood that we start to learn. Right. So what do you see as those? What do you see as those practical under the hood? It's supposed to be lived out. So what do you yeah. see Peter actually calling us to here in light of this identity? So in verse thirteen, with the, with the elect exiles, right? He's going to give. He's going to start to give a series of commands. And and again, when we think commands, I think it's best to think practices now that need to be worked out. Okay. Now let's let's put this into action. Let's let's get going. Well, that first one is to set your hope fully on the grace to be brought when Jesus Christ returns, found in verse 13, where it's just this, I think it's working out everything that he's talked about in 3 through 12, and, he, and it's, it's, I think we need to see it pretty simple. Now work this out. Like, learn to take areas of your life that you find that are set in, in the world as it is, and begin to reset it into the world as it is going to be, right? It's it's Jesus's statement of storing treasures in heaven where neither earth or uh, a moth nor rust can destroy. It's this it's this thing and again I I think what's beautiful about it is it's not a one-time endeavor. Right. It is a lifetime of learning, oh wow, that aspect of my life I I, I really have set my hope, right? So uh, we just walked through an election, and so we, we had, many of us had set our hope on elected officials, not on the eternal realities of a king who, who reigns forever. What? Yeah, I know. Um, but even down into, right, like, think about when I was in middle school, how many things I set my hope on that kind of devastated my world at that time. I look back on it now, maybe. What was her I, name? Yeah, I know her name. What athletic Lisa endeavor? Not. <laughs> but yeah, there's just this way in which he's he's saying, look, learn to set your hope mm-hmm. on these things that are important, which uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little later when we get practical. The, the second command that he lays out that I really want to talk with you about, because I, I want to press back and forth on this one, but... There's a command that you find as he works into verse 15 that he's he's obviously pulling out of the Old Testament and this beautiful statement of the Old Testament, you know, be holy for I am holy. Uh, not Obviously not be holy like I'm holy. We can't do that. Right. But I really do, the more I studied that and looked at the reality of how that command is put together, it's become holy. It's not just be holy. It's it's become holy. Right. And again, I think to go back to it, it's a learning process but the way we defined holiness was taking on the character of God. Like learn over time to realize there's aspects of our lives that do not have the character of God. And we need to now take them on, understanding through, I need to repent. I need right. to, you know, confess my sin that I, I have wrong things. But repentance isn't full until I embrace these beautiful characteristics of God, which to get back to your point earlier, display God. Yeah. Work it to display, like work it out. Right. Which I think in that, in that section, you have of becoming holy, recognizing it is a process, but then the holiness side of going, it's not this moral perfection, but it's you're designated for a purpose yeah. in going that it's it's a very distinct purpose. It's a unique purpose. And the holiness here is, like you said, to put God on display, to make God known, reflect God accurately. So become those who are reflecting God accurately. Yeah. Truly, allow that mirror of our lives to be, you know, if it's broken, well, well fixed. If it's skewed, well, then write it. Yeah, but not on your terms. No, on his on, terms. On, on his terms, yeah. Well, what's so cool is that is a that's why it's become, it's a passive command. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whenever we talk inside of, we're using words like passive, it means I don't do it. It's done to me. It's It's a work of God in my life. I can't claim that I'm the one that did it. It is a total work in which I submit myself to God. I 
I engage, I practice these things, but then God does this supernatural work of, of writing the mirror of my life. Right. And he's even contrasting it in that section because he's saying, this is what God's called you to as this new redeemed image bearer, but it's not like your ancestors. Your ancestors in, those, in the, the culture that you're a part of, guys, that's broken. Yeah. And, and he's reminding them and he's... Cre- he, Peter's doing a crazy contrast here of going, hey, there's this, there's this new identity that you have as elect exiles, and it's different than your ancestors. Yeah, and that's the part of setting your hope fully. You've got to let go of that. Yeah. Your, your, your hope is not... Those things that your, your ancestors were engaged in did not bring life. Right. You need to let go of that and embrace... And again, this is this, these, these commands are all tied together as practice in a beautiful right. way. And they all work towards this end of, right. of what does it look like to display God well. But letting go of those kind of the ancestral kind of ties and that identity that's maybe yoked to your family or your tribe or whatever group you were a part of. And Peter's saying, it's like, man, that's, he's acknowledging the difficulty of that. Mm-hmm. But he is saying, hey, you have a new identity. I think that's, I'll be interested to talk through the practical side of that one. Yeah. But you, you get into that section and he starts talking about a new inheritance. It's like, hey, you know what? You probably lost your earthly inheritance. You probably lost the ties to whatever group you were a part of before. But hey, you have a new one. In light of this new identity, you have a new inheritance. You know, it, I don't know. He just, yeah. he creates such a contrast there. Um, and that inheritance is connected to family. Mm-hmm. They lost family. Oh, yeah. Which that's at the core of who we are as people. And suddenly, right, to now have this new family. And again, I think this is all part of taking on God's character. It is taking on even the concept of new family. It's realizing that our greater family is this family that we've been born again into, right? He's, he's really bolstering them, which, which again, after the last 15 months we've been in, I think we need it, a reminder of who we are, our family. And so that becoming holy is so important. Yeah. And it's not an exclusion of our biological family necessarily. It's, it's a, it's an addition to of saying, Hey, this is, we're part of the family of God and that that is our primary family. That's our primary identity. And in fact, I believe when I embrace that primary identity, I am a better father to my my Mm -hmm. family here. I'm a better husband. I'm a better uncle. I'm a better, you know, again, however far you want to stretch family. And so that that's kind of his second command, yeah. which again it's it has everything to do with taking on the character of God, which is a, to go back to what you laid out earlier is a display language. That third command is is kind of an interesting one, right? It's to it's to cons- it's in some way now we're to conduct ourselves in this fear during the time of our exiles, our exile, and he he obviously builds into it verses eighteen and nineteen, which I think are super powerful to explain what it looks like, but. Like fear is something I don't know if we know how to talk about, right? We're we're com- we're commanded to do it. Like he's almost his point is, is if you're going to really learn to be an elect exile, now we need to learn to fear. And I, and I I think the way that I've always looked at this, and I a book by Ed Welch. Um, what's the name? Of, do you remember the name of that book? Uh, about people are big. And yeah, God when is people small. are big and God is small. Yeah. No, I didn't the, remember the name of that. But you did, <laughs> and so I'm proud of you. But I think like one of the ideas that he puts in there, right, is, is of fear. Whatever we fear the most will control us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in the, especially it's learning to rightly fear God. But it, I think it's more than like the awe and the, the wonder, right? There's this side of fear that really has to do with anybody that's encountered God has fallen on their face in front of him, right? Whether we're talking Isaiah or even a New Testament understanding a 
post-resurrection reality, giving of the Holy Spirit. John fell on his face as though dead. Yeah, so Paul did on the road to Emmaus, right? I mean, right? Paul had like, a face plant, you Totally, know? right? These, anybody that's encountered him. But I think the part of that that I love is this, I think human beings, we're, we're designed to fear. Like, I yeah. think deep within us, every time somebody jumps off a, and does a, you know, a, does a bungee cord, I think every time we jump out of a plane, I think every time we climb a mountain, uh, like all those realities, why we watch horror movies. Right. Um, it's misplaced fear. It's, but it's totally still... misplaced, but I think it's a longing inside yeah. of humanity to fear something. And it, it, it's good, though, when that fear finds its place in God. It's it's yeah. where it's supposed to go. It's we're we're and I that seems so strange to people, but there is good fear. It just has to be placed in the correct thing. Like there's good loves, but they have to be placed in the correct thing. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think the the thing that I love about what you were just talking about is is what Peter's doing there when he's calling us to fear and rightly fear. But right before that, in verse 17, he also reminds of, in, 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 the, the, in the Net Bible, he, he, Peter's, uh, the translation is, is your, he reminds them of their temporary residence. In light of your temporary residence, live in fear. Yes. But it's that reminder of, hey, this is not ultimately, this is just a context, this is just a setting, but this, this right, rightly aligned fear mm-hmm. If we do this properly, as we actually actually put Jesus on display well, we actually reflect God well to the world. Yeah, if we're supposed to be elect exiles, now if you put those three commands together, elect exiles by practice set their hopefully. This this is what you need to do to be a, a, a displayer of God as an elect exile. You need to take wrong hopes and, and do this. Um, to be a, an elect exile, you need to practice beco- taking on, becoming holy, taking on the character of God. And then the second one is, or the third one is, is that, okay, to become this elect exile, to truly display God well, and especially this time, the way you're talking about this, this temporal nature, to be what it is that we're supposed to be in this time and place to display God, well, you need to conduct yourselves in fear. It, it mm-hmm. matters, which again, that word conduct is going to come up uh, through the rest of the way through through First Peter. So in order to live out this identity of reflecting God well to the world, do those three. What's the fourth command? Because you said yeah. there were four. So those practice, and again, these are practices. It's not conceptual. I want to make sure people understand this. Okay. It's not just, because okay, you and I have talked about it, does not mean we're doing it. We actually have to go put this in practice. Sure. Now, the fourth one, I think, is it's the, <clears throat> it's the culmination of all these, where he calls people to, and it's so fascinating, he He's, he's, he's bringing them into it. He's saying, now, coming to him, now, as you come to this one who truly is, he's talking about Christ there, he says, again, I want you to conduct yourselves in a certain way. And, he, and specifically, he ties it to this idea of brotherly love. And then he says, here's your command, love one another. It's, it's to be these elect exiles, in order to truly display God, you're going to have to learn what does it look like? And again, this word love is not like, if you look around all of that in verse 22, it's sincere, it's pure. It's not just mm-hmm. love like I think the world, like to your point, it's not like your ancestors, not that kind of love. We're talking about a supernatural love that even when he gets in there to love one another, and then he uses this word earnestly, which means even beyond what you can actually in and of yourself love. I want this group of elect exiles to learn to love in extravagant ways and at great cost to themselves in what they're doing. Yeah, you're loving differently. Yeah. 
But he, what's so great about that is then he connects it. Like I can just imagine them going, oh, I can't do this. But then in, in, down in verse 23, he says, yeah, but you get it. You've been born again. He, he, he throws in again, do you, do you remember who you are? Like, I know you don't think you can, but again, a, an indicative to what we were talking about earlier. Do you remember who you are? Yeah, that, that identity, a reminder of the right identity actually does give us the capacity to actually do these things yes. that are so counterintuitive. They're yes. so different than the way our culture or the culture in the first century think and process. And going, no, but this is, when we do this, we actually help the world see God better. Yes. And it's it's so great in there. He says to them, you know that that word of God that was preached to you? Oh, that word, it 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 made you born again. It was like a seed. And, and I love the way he uses seed there because it's like genetically, spiritually, you got changed. Like it's it's like, do you understand? You you can you can do this now. Right. Yeah, Which, you, yeah, yes, powerful. you can. But let's be honest of going, living out that one anothering side of things, displaying God, that gets really hard. And I mean, I know that Peter is talking about practice, but let's talk about the the reality of going. I think that's the next section, but, yeah. but going, let's talk about the reality of going. This is really, really difficult. Yeah. Well, and it is. It's And this is where I think we need to talk about the plural nature of this, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can't do this alone. I mean, all those times I think... We've tried to work this out as my own personal identity in Jesus. We've really got to start stretching this beyond a personal identity. We need to start seeing this as that. Grammar nerds unite. This is a second person plural <laughs> here, second, folks. But again, to, to, what, before we do, go there. Do you know what a second person plural is? Don't just assume. Y'all. That. Okay, there. It's y'all. Okay, you do know what the a southern, second person plural is. The southern plural. folks know what a second person plural is. It's y'all. But it, it he, he really does want them to say, again, before we get practical, I know that what you're exactly saying right now, it's hard and it's difficult, but this is Peter going, I don't care what you think. Right. This is who you are. And this is what you're called to. And this is what you're called to. Yep. And I think like we have to really embrace that because it doesn't, again, I don't get to define my identity. Mm -mm. I don't get to. This is him defining it. Now we do have to work it out and it's hard. It's hard to be in God's word. It's hard to what he's going to talk about in, in 1 Peter 2, 2, to truly nourish ourselves on the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it we might grow up into our salvation. It's, it's hard to deny the opportunities to, to, to engage down these things that aren't going to build love because oftentimes I want to go down those things in verse 1 that don't build love. I, I want to mock people and be cynical and sarcastic. Not you, me. Mm-hmm. But he really is saying to them, you can do this. Yeah. It's, it's it's there's a there is the the capability because of of who's in you. And, yeah. And so that's no, what. But I think I think just as far as even the flow and format that we have of going, that's what we should be striving for, especially in this section. Going, we're arguing for the biblical ideal. Yes. Next, you know, next section we're going to actually talk through the the difficulty of it and the in the complexity of it. But but no, that biblical ideal is hey, it doesn't matter what you want. This is what God's called us to. Yeah. So let's let's go ahead. Let's let's get practical. All right. So let's get practical because I think messy. <laughs> oh, you and I have talked about this one because I think because the church has been so individualistic, right? You well, the church. We're talk- in Simi Valley in part of the United States. Yeah. It, the, well, let's just say the United States church as probably a whole, we, 
we tend to be much more individualistic than much, much, many more cultures outside of sure. who we are. We, and again, I think with us becoming more of a diverse culture, we're, we're taking on aspects that are less individualistic. Um, and again, even just so everybody understands, there's aspects of individualism that are good, just like there's aspects of, of more of a pluralism that are, are negative or not pluralism, uh, but a, a corporate identity that, that could become negative. But in this particular case, the messiness of this is we can't do this alone. No. And you and I have talked about this for so many years, just the the reality of working through something like in, in verse 22, love like he's talking about here, this is brutal. I don't, I, I've never worked this out in any facet of my life where I feel like, oh, I nailed that one. Right. It's, it's really hard. So maybe kick us off a little bit and help us to understand why is this so important that we see this in a plural concept, is to see this truly communally, to to see this as something that needs to be shared together versus something that gets looked at individually like we tend to do? Why is this so important so that we can start getting much more practical to what we're doing here? Yeah, no, I think there's a, there's a few different thoughts there. Um, one is it's resetting our identity of going, if, if as humans we were created to to reflect God to the world, God is in relationship with himself, right? There's a plural aspect to God. And so we can't put the relational side of God on display by ourselves. And so there's that side of it. But then there's also a, an interesting aspect that, that living in a culture that is fiercely individualized, like we value independence highly mm-hmm. and, and going well when when we go through hardship and suffering, it's it's not like the rest of the world isn't suffering. It's it's as redeemed image bearers, we suffer differently than the world around us, and so we're not going to suffer on our own. We're going to actually go through hardship, and you go wow, we get to put the relational aspect of God on display. Yeah. And I think there's a I think that's just essential. But it's so the messiness here for me is going. Our culture so values um, independence. I would say that independence has become the standard of success in many of our lives. I mean, you think about it, you go, how do you know that I've finally grown up is when I can move out of my house or my mom and dad's house and actually live on my own. I become independent. That's how I know I finally matured. Or on a parent side, how do I know I was actually a successful parent when my kids are living on their own and they're independent or, you know, financial independence or, you know, whatever. But you go, man, if we, if we think that independence is our standard of success, we're going to have a really hard time embracing the one anothering of scripture. Yeah. It so works against our understanding of dependence upon God. Yeah. Right. Which we're called to, we're not called to be independent of God. We're called to be dependent, but then to be the way in which we now we interact with one another. Yeah, so interdependent much, on each the other. true interdependence upon each other within the local church that you read about, starting way back in the book of Acts when the Spirit of God lands on the people. It is a tale of interdependence. Right. And not, not only local, but like even, I was thinking the other day in, in 1 Corinthians, there's an interdependence that Paul demands of the church in Corinth for their brothers and sisters mm-hmm. in Jerusalem, right? Yeah. It's we No, like you need to see yourselves truly as interdependent people, which for me, now let me, let me just confess some things to you. You you already probably know this about me, but I'll confess it. I think my biggest problem is not trying to be interdependent when someone else is in trouble. 
I have a hard time asking for help when I'm there because it's going to reveal flaws in me. It's mm-hmm. going to reveal that I hurt. It's going to reveal a lot of things that I do not want people to see as far as weakness. Yeah. If I do this, if I really now learn how to engage the body interdependently, people are going to get a different image of me than I portray maybe as I preach on a Sunday morning or I portray in my friendships with other people. That to me is probably one of the scariest aspects of talking about it is that I'm going to have to be real. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think I think that's where I don't know. A while ago I was in a in a just walking through a really tough season of life and and in in good, you know, Simi Valley Americana, I was I mean, I was doing it on my own. I was, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps and you know, I'm going to get her done and so I just started working harder. And the more I worked harder, the more exhausted I got and the less things were actually getting done. And so I just doubled down and started working even harder. And so, um, you know, working multiple jobs, multiple this, that, um, and, and frankly, things were falling apart. Hmm. And a buddy of mine came in and said, Hey, are you actually, are you actually willing to accept help here? To your point and going the hardest thing, I mean, I, I'll give people the shirt off my back. I don't mind. I love helping others. Um, well, sometimes I love helping others. Let's be honest. <laughs> Let's be honest, you know, but going, but all of a sudden I'm on the, I'm on the, on the need side. I'm on the, yeah. I, I need something here. And just a real frank question. The guy said, are you at a point where you are willing to accept help? And I was at a point of so much despair where I literally went, I don't care anymore. You do whatever you want. Yeah. And he goes, okay. And all of a sudden that that required other people entering in so now all of a sudden well someone shows up and fixes my car well that that bothered me because i want to take care of things on my own so all of a sudden my car is getting fixed by you know this high school kid and i'm like really a high school kid's fixing my car for me i should be able to do that all of a sudden lady from around the corner shows up and she starts taking our kids to school or and getting some laundry done and and helping out and and that bothered both my wife and I, and then all of a sudden, but, but the thing I didn't realize was happening was as these different people from our church community started entering in and practicing the one another's, bearing one another's burdens, loving one another, what I didn't realize was happening was that our neighbors were watching. And while I was trying to do this on my own, my neighbors just looked and went, he's got a car that makes God awful noises and his lawn looks like crap, you know, but all of a sudden, People start entering in and our neighbors start asking me, hey, who is it that keeps, who's that young kid who came over and was working on your car? Oh, that's, that's a guy from the church body. Man, I didn't realize the church actually cared for people. Hey, who's that lady who keeps picking up your kids? Because we've seen her over here a bunch. Oh, she's a lady from the church who lives around the corner. Really? You guys, your church does that? And all of a sudden, our neighbors are getting a glimpse of who God is that's different than the world. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I went, man... When I was going through hardship on my own, maybe the way that, you know, that kind of that individualized reality, Jesus, the the neighborhood didn't see Jesus well. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, when I go through hardship differently, man, the world started to catch a glimpse of who Jesus was, but it was because of the one anothering that was happening. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it was just... Completely. And it's in every facet of life. Like I was thinking about it the other day, as a middle schooler, 
I remember so much of my life was trying to prove independence, mm-hmm. right? Like I, and in fact, I was a complete jerk to my parents in the, sure. in the effort to prove independence, which I was not ready to be independent at all. But you, you really are, I think, conditioned. And I think so many, like, if there's anybody listening that might be a middle school or high school or college student, right? There's this streak within us that an aspect of it is good, right? We need to learn. Paul, Paul says we do need to learn to stand on ourselves in Galatians 6 in, in certain ways. But there's this other side of it. We're conditioned to not put Jesus on display because we're conditioned to try to do these things alone. Yeah, I can. I could just Google it myself. Totally, I can. Me I, and Google will, get, will conquer the world. And in some ways, it's you know, especially like I was thinking about this. Also, kind of as I've worked through it, it's inefficient in in my head. It's inefficient. But if the goal is putting God on display, well, inefficiency then is actually okay. Um, it's okay that I'm inviting other people. No, oftentimes it's not inefficient. It's actually more efficient as we work together. But there's just these different aspects, these lies that we believe mm-hmm. that don't fit into it, that that keep us. And I, and I love how you put it. They truly keep us from displaying God. And that's where it's keeping that at, at the forefront. So yeah. So let me, let me throw a, a, another aspect of this back to you. So how would you recommend somebody that's wrestling through the plural nature of this? Like how, how we take on shared life more. What have you found have been maybe some of the key things that you've realized in your life that you need to, you need to, to be thinking about presently wrestling with to make sure that you're keeping your life a, a shared life in that kind of a way? What, what are some of the key aspects? Um, I think the priority of relationship mm. um, it's impossible to practice the one another's without relationship. I know that sounds silly, but you go, but you, but you have to have people around you yeah. um, and you have to prioritize those relationships. And, yeah. and so I would say, man, what, at what point is the priority of relationship actually affecting decision-making? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because we're not looking at each other and going, you know, that moment something comes out of your mouth because I've done this with you before. I've something has come out of my mouth, and I remember seeing your face, which oftentimes you don't have uh, expressions on it. But let's just mm. pretend like you did have expressions on it, and you, you, I could see it in your face. That was a dumb thought, and then I was like, "Oh, that is a dumb thought, right?" Like we we actually need the body to look at us and go, "Oh man, like that's yeah." But more than just meeting with somebody once a month, oh, like, the, the body, yeah. But going actually having people have that degree of relational access to you mm-hmm. where it's like, because let's be honest. I mean, if, if you and I were to get together once a month um, and talk through life, the reality is you're going to get current events and you're going to get exactly what I want you to see. Yeah. But if we're actually prioritizing relationship where, you know, you show up at my house and you're around my kids and my wife and, and I get to see your kids and family and, okay, I don't need to ask you how you're doing. I see how you're doing. And, you know, I, I get a little bit, but, and so I would say one thing on, on this, the priority of the one anothering, the relational side is prioritizing relationship. Yeah. And then like anything though, saying yes to one things means you, you have to say no to other things. And, and when we say prioritizing relationship, um, that inevitably means you're going to be saying no to things. And, and I don't know that people really have prioritized relationships in that way where they're willing to say no to other things. If yeah, that, I don't know if that makes sense or I not. I think that, well, I think the word busy comes to mind, right? Like I, I hear that in my 
vernacular, and I hear it in so many other people, like even saying, hey, let's get together with somebody, and oh, let's pull out our calendars. And within two months, finally, we've, we've hung out means that probably our lives are so busy that we don't have we don't have space built into it anymore for just mm-hmm. authentic relationship and it's we're busy our kids are busy um it, it's it is fascinating to see how quickly time will fill those and generally i found we don't fill them with relationship yeah so the priority of of time and relationship i think is essential for the one anothering relational component i think the other thing is the anticipation of failure mm-hmm. um like if I'm really going to love you well, according to like what first Peter says, um, you need, I, I need to know and expect that you're going to fail. Like, I know this sounds really bad. I expect my friends to violate me. Like I have a real low bar, you know? <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? I'm going, I expect them to sin against me, you know, I just do. And, and it's, and so I'm not surprised when somebody says something or doesn't do something, uh, you know, I totally expect <laughs> So I, I think I think a lot of that is it's not only that that in some ways they're going to sin against me, yeah, but I think even realizing we're going to sin against them. Like I I think sometimes right. we and we we don't again because we don't want to be seen as failures. Right. It actually we are failing and we're failing regularly and it's I think like that's where for me. The one another is what that allows us to do is it allows us to escape what is a mediocrity of failure. We just kind of keep failing ourselves into this ongoing mediocrity versus relationships compel us to fail into maturity. Yeah. They, they, they don't allow us to stay status quo. They, they truly do. They're compelling by nature, which is so important as followers of Jesus that we are, to, we are going to fail, right? right. The, built into the gospel is the reality that we will fail. It's not if we fail. Right. And, and I, I mean, I was thinking about today, this last week has been a testimony to failure, right? And, and that's just your life. No, that's, right, no, right. that's, that's well. truly my life. Every week I give testimony to the fact I fail all of the time, but yet we're almost shocked right? when people are like, oh, you fail? Yeah. Right. But there, there's an interesting generational thing here that I think we can, I mean, everything you're saying is true, um, but going, there is something I go... I was, was interacting with a guy at Cornerstone, older gentleman. Uh, and it's funny how older gets, it keeps shifting. That's a moving <laughs> target, right? <laughs> older is now like 90s, you know? <laughs> no, but but a guy who's, you know, um, younger middle-aged guy in his mid-70s. Um, <laughs> you know, but I was asking him about this and I, and, and I said, man, how do you, how do you age grace gracefully, basically? And he's such a gracious guy. And he goes, well try not to take myself too seriously because I realize I fail a lot and I always have something to learn because I don't know everything. Wow. And I was like, okay, there's, there's something that he's very comfortable in his own skin, recognizing that, Hey, there's still a lot for me to learn. And then I go all the way and I feel like, man, I, I wasn't comfortable in my own skin till I was probably in my early forties going, you know, then I look at high school and college age students and I'm like the, the, the importance of maintaining some degree of image in the the unwillingness to acknowledge failure mm-hmm. and going, man, there's a continuum here that I go, the need to engage relationally across generations where mm-hmm. some of these older folks are, are willing to interact with the idealism of the youth and the youth are really willing to, to see the modeling of um, the modeling of, 
you know, a, a life that is still, and even though I'm older and even though I've got a lot of, you know, miles under the, under the wheels, man, I still got a lot to learn and failure is a part of it. And I don't know. I just think there's the importance of relationship, the priority of time, the recognition of failure, the importance to engage cross generationally. Yeah. I just think there's a lot there. Well, cool. Well, thanks, man. Like, I can't wait for our next session because I believe all these indicatives, these realities of who God says we are, all these commands, the working them out, everything is building towards what I think is going to be a really fun discussion when we start talking about us as a temple. Yeah, a because bit. that is, I think that that plural aspect of, hey, in order to do any of these things that Paul's calling or Peter's calling us to in chapter, you know, the, the later part of chapter one or the first part of chapter two, both the indicatives and those calls to action demand us being together. Yep. And that temple reality is a is a y'all concept. Yeah. The Southerners had it right, didn't they? I'm not going to comment, but yes. Oh, wait, that sounded really bad in light of current events. <laughs> yeah, they had the y'all part right. <laughs> Only the y'all part, maybe. But anyways, well, thanks so much, man. I totally, totally appreciate our discussion. Uh, we'll look forward to it. Uh, you can even start thinking through 2-4 and following. If you want to wrestle through some of that stuff, if you even want to send us questions, you can send uh, different uh, questions to questions at, CME, uh, at cornerstonesemi.com. And uh, Spencer and I would even be able to hopefully maybe answer some of the questions that are coming up. So this was our second podcast. Um, uh, both Spencer and I have a heart for the local church. We believe it's a place where we take biblical truths and ideals and we, we bring them to life and we work them out. And so we hope today you, uh, you enjoy just working them out with us. We look forward to, to some of the next episodes. God bless. We'll see you later.